Ian Baruma is the author of many books, including A Tokyo Romance, The Churchill Complex, Their Promised Land, Year Zero, The China Lover, Murder in Amsterdam, Occidentalism, and God's Dust. He teaches at Bard College, is a columnist for Project Syndicate, and contributor to The New Yorker, The New York Times, and other publications. He was awarded the 2008 Erasmus Prize for making an especially important contribution to European culture and was voted one of the top 100 public intellectuals by the Foreign Policy magazine. Ian Baruma, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. And so you're going to uh, begin with a, a reading from one of your books. Just tell us to refresh in our minds the, the story of Theo van Gogh. Well, Theo van Gogh was, was a, a relative of the famous painter, and he was known as a kind of bad boy in uh, Dutch um, movie circles and journalism and so on. He was a, pro a provocateur. He liked to say things that shocked people and so on. And at one point, he agreed to make a movie, a short movie, with a then uh, well-known Dutch politician who was actually from Somalia called Ayan Hirsi Ali called Submission. And it was an extremely provocative short film because it showed uh, a woman, supposedly a, a Muslim woman naked with the Quran projected on her back. And the idea was to expose, as they saw it, the violence done by the Quran to women. And this, in an atmosphere in which there was already quite a lot of tension between immigrants and the mainstream population and the right-wing anti-immigrant parties were beginning to emerge, it caused a big upset. And so a young Dutch guy of Moroccan origin, who did not grow up being a particularly radical Muslim at all, but um, took it up as a kind of revolutionary cause, as some people do, reacted to this film by murdering uh, Theo van Gogh in the middle of Amsterdam when he was riding along on his bicycle. And he shot him and then cut his throat with a knife. And this really caused a huge upset in the Netherlands and a big debate about Islam, the role of Islam, the immigrants, uh, and so on. And so on one side, you had commentators and politicians not necessarily all of the right, I mean, quite a lot of people on the left who saw Islam and particularly radical Islamism as a great threat to liberal democracy, to Western civilization and so on. And this is really, these, this was not unheard of, but this was really the beginning of this debate, which still goes on, of course, in Europe. And in this sense, the case of Theo van Gogh was perhaps a harbinger of what was to come in other countries, including France, of course, in Europe. So I decided to write a book about it because to me, the personalities involved were very interesting and it had the elements of a tragedy in that uh, you had three people. You had this provocateur, Theo van Gogh, very Dutch, very product of the 1960s and so on. On the other hand, you had Ayan Hirsi Ali, who, who grew up in Somalia and Saudi Arabia. Um, had been a devout Muslim, came to the Netherlands as an immigrant and was radicalized herself in a way in that she decided to renounce her faith. And like a lot of people who convert to 
one way or another, became rather outspoken, perhaps even zealous in her anti-Islam attitudes. And then you had the killer, Mohammed Bouyeri, who grew up in Amsterdam, outwardly normal Dutch kid, even though he was the child of immigrants, drank beer, liked football, chased girls and that kind of thing, and then became an Islamist revolutionary. And so the story I wanted to tell was how these three people and what they represented came to an inevitable clash and a violent one. So that's the origins of this book. And I'll read a bit from the, how the book ends. Religion can also fuel hatred and become a source of political violence. Amsterdam, like any big city in Europe and beyond, is now linked through a network of instant communication to a global revolutionary movement based on an extremist and largely modern interpretation of Islam. To join this movement was the choice of Mohammed Bouyeri. Abdul Hakim, who is a, another character in the story, is not Muhammad Bouyeri. He and others like him could yet choose to join his murderous cause, but such a choice depends partly on the way they are treated by the country in which they were born. And this depends on another choice, whether to accept an Orthodox Muslim as a fellow free citizen of a European country. I boarded the tram to the soccer stadium in Rotterdam in a rush of orange supporters, orange being the color of the Dutch national team. Inside the tram, grown men in carnival costumes were jumping up and down with a fervor that blurred the borderlines between ecstasy and fury. I tried to bury my face in the newspaper. Spotting my standoffishness, one man started bellowing the Dutch national anthem into my ear. When I looked up from my paper, he screamed, don't you love Holland? His face was flushed with what looked like to me like rage. I mouthed a somewhat cowardly, sure I do, hoping that he would go away. Others around him were shouting, Germany is finished, Germany is finished. And then as an afterthought, we haven't forgotten the war. Rotterdam's magnificent stadium was a sea of orange, waving the national red, white and blue. I saw one person with a replica of a cow on top of his orange jester's hat. There were banners with the names of supporter groups from various Dutch towns. I saw people in clogs dancing to an old fashioned brass band. Like all carnivals, this patriotic feast with shades of a Bruegel painting was a fantasy, the celebration of an imaginary community, rural, joyous, traditional and white. It was a return to an invented country, no more real than a modern Dutch Muslim's fantasy of the pure world of the prophet. Both fantasies contain the seeds of destruction. The orange men seem relatively harmless. Their patriotism by and large is a festive holiday from post-war political pieties. But on November 2, 2004, the violent fantasies of a Dutch Muslim ended in the murder of a fellow citizen. I have described some of the responses to this deed over the course of a year, some sensible, some vicious, some plain silly. But the story is not over. What happened in this small corner of Northwestern Europe could happen anywhere, as long as young men and women feel that death is their only way home. 
And as you point to that, I'm calling to you from Paris. And so we had that, of course, with Samuel Paty, and these incidents continue to, to play out in different aggressions. What did you learn in the writing of that book? It's just so complex. Even that small passage draws in so many threads. Well, it's very difficult to know when you write a book exactly what you learn, because things that you learn then find a way into the book, and then you think you've known them all, all along. It's often in the thinking before you actually write the book that, that you learn something. I mean, it depends on the, on the technique of, of writing. There are writers who like to say that they have to start writing before they know what to think. And gradually they, their ideas crystallize while they're writing. Myself, I tend to try and think through what I want to say before I actually write. And then things change while you write, of course. It made me think about maybe how you're writing when you write a novel might be different for them when you're writing a non-fiction. Mm -hmm. I suppose, how did it make you reflect upon nationalism? How did it help you understand different perspectives on the same? Well, I mean, I've always been interested in, and in some ways, all the books I've written revolve around this same subject, which is how people imagine themselves, what they think they are, how they imagine their identities, uh, and so on. And that's probably true of all writers. It has an autobiographical background in that I grew up in Holland, but my mother was, was not Dutch, she was British. And so I was always very aware, ever since I was a child, of different national characteristics or different ways of behaving, even speaking different languages. We spoke several languages at home. So you become very attuned to that. And so most of my writing, whether it's about Japan or China or, or, or Europe, is really about that question of what people think they are, how they imagine themselves to be and so on. And so this book was a, an opportunity for me to go back to the country I grew up in, which I left when I was 23, and I've never really lived there for extended periods of time since, but to come to grips with how Holland had changed. And, and it changed a great deal, because when I grew up in The Hague in the, in the 50s and 60s, it was still somewhat unusual to come from a family with parents who were from different countries. I mean, society was very white, not homogeneous, but nonetheless very Dutch in a traditional sort of way. When I went back in 2004, things had really changed quite drastically. And this was not surprising in a city like Rotterdam or Amsterdam or even The Hague, which are big cities. And to, to see large immigrant populations there was not surprising. But even small towns, had really changed. And you saw people from an immigrant background all over the country. And this was clearly causing tensions. It also was enriching, in my view. I think countries need Im immigration, and there are many advantages to it. But it was causing tensions. And it was those tensions that, that I found interesting. Now, the, the book caused a lot of controversy in the Netherlands itself, because I expressed quite a lot of skepticism about the idea that uh, Islam was the greatest 
threat to Western civilization and that this was inevitably going to lead to catastrophes and so on. And some friends of mine, people who had always been sort of on the left, were convinced that this was so. And so my skepticism uh, was met with quite a lot of hostility, which in itself, of course, is part of the story, part of the tensions that exist. So since you have written, uh, you've been in New York most of the time. How has the society in Holland changed even since the writing? Well, on the one hand, I think it's calmed down a bit, partly because there haven't been any spectacular, unlike in Paris, say, there haven't been any spectacular acts of violence in the name of Islamism. But one thing that has certainly uh, changed since then is in politics, in mainstream politics, the role of the anti-immigrant right wing, as is true in other parts of Europe, has grown enormously. So in the last general election, the far-right parties, all of whom are hostile to immigration and especially to to Islam, now have almost 30% of the votes, which for a small and relatively peaceful and prosperous society is, is pretty bizarre. And when I was writing this book, the voters for the far-right parties would not be much more than 15%. So that's a very big change. One thing I didn't see coming at all is that the main politician who is still very successful, who's the sort of, he's a friend of Martin Le Pen, and I actually interviewed him for this book he still allowed me to interview then I wouldn't get even near him now and I spoke to him for more than an hour and I never used a word he said I thought this is not going to go anywhere this guy I mean I didn't see it I interviewed somebody else from his party and thought he had much more possibility he's just a councilman in Rotterdam now so I've completely misjudged Wilders but the the growth of the of the far right has been remarkable and that's something that you've explored in, in other books, uh, not particularly in, in Holland, but in, uh, the, in the, your book, The Churchill Complex. Well, in The Churchill Complex, I'm, I'm not sure there's so much about the far right. I mean, there is in, in the sense that it ends with Trump and Brexit. And all parties of the far right uh, in Europe and elsewhere, of course, they have the rise of these parties has everything to do with the confusion over national identity, who people think they are, the threats that they think are there and so on. So, yes, your, your question is correct in that there is clearly a link there and that the rise of populism in the United States under Donald Trump has a lot to do with perceptions of identity. And in America, inevitably, that means race. And race is not the only reason that Trump uh, got elected, but an element in it was clearly that a lot of white people, especially in rural and provincial America, feel that the rise of successful immigrants, of uh, people of color, the influence of African-Americans and so on, of Mexicans, Asian-Americans, etc., is sort of threatening the privileged position of the white population. And so that's the shape it takes in America. Britain, of course, is different. Not that there are no racial tensions there, but that's not the main thing that drives right-wing politics. I do describe, of course, in the Churchill complex, the tensions between Britain and Europe and the extent to which When I say Britain or the British, I really mean the English, because I think Brexit was 
an expression of English nationalism. It's very different in Scotland, but the English have never felt entirely comfortable as Europeans, or at least many English, and it depends also on, on people's age. Uh, the young people in England feel much happier with <clears throat> being European and being able to travel all over Europe and so on. But the older generation, especially of the English, have, have long felt that they didn't quite fit in and that England was special and wasn't like the rest of Europe and so on. And this has been exploited by politicians and mainly in the Tory party but not only to go for Brexit and then again the Labour Party um, has its own problems with Europe in that a lot of members white members of the working class in the north of England who feel left behind whose industries have collapsed and so on feel a similar threat that some it's, their problems are then blamed on Europe on, fa on foreigners on immigrants and so you know, they too struggle with the question of who they are. Yes, it's fascinating just how much geography really determines our biography. This, for people who, who haven't had a chance to read all of your books and your contributions to so many journals, but your path to being the writer and editor you are today is very, just tell us a little bit about that, you know, what brought you to, to Asia, you've been involved in theatre, in dance, just tell us wh where did you get this enormous curiosity? Well, partly going back to what I said earlier, it comes from growing up in a mixed family. I always felt that my mother's family, who were from London and were involved in theatre and film and so on, was more glamorous than my father's family. And so I, I always felt The Hague was a town that I wanted to get out of. And in the end, I wanted to get out of Holland too. It's a small country. And like many other people in Holland throughout history, I always felt it was a place to leave and go and explore the world. And my interest in, in Asia had no deep background. I mean, I like Chinese food and Indonesian food, which was the, the sort of the typical Asian food you got in Holland when I grew up. But I wanted to, I was interested in a part of the world I knew nothing about. And so I decided to study Chinese, but it was still really the end of the Cultural Revolution when you couldn't visit China even. It was like the other side of the moon, unless you were an official friend of the people and you went, could go on an organized tour. And Mao's China didn't really attract me very much either. In Amsterdam, as a student, I saw Japanese modern theater and, and Japanese film. And then I thought, actually, this is much more to my taste. And I got a, a scholarship to study film in, in Tokyo. It's very remoteness was fascinating to me. And for a young person to, to be there, especially in the 70s, when it was still quite exciting in Tokyo, was a great experience, partly because you were such an outsider. Not that you couldn't make friends. I mean, people were very warm, but, but you were always an outsider. Really made you consider your own identity too. And so that was a, a wonderful experience. 
And that's something you explore in Tokyo Romance. It's interesting how you form yourself there and you were involved in film and you made documentaries. It's just, why did you then settle on, you would be a, a writer because you've experimented in these other disciplines? Well, I think by accident, I don't have the patience <clears throat> to be a filmmaker. I'm, I, I couldn't stand having to wait for years for a budget to fall into place and that kind of thing. I just, I'm much too impatient. I was a photographer for a while in Japan, but then I started writing film reviews for the local English language newspaper called the Japan Times and discovered really that I enjoyed it. I enjoyed being able to work on your own and, and to express yourself in words. And, and it was not something I'd really done very much before. I was not one of those kids who wrote for the school magazine and that kind of thing. I was not very literary but sort of discovered it by accident. And I think also it seems the importance of human rights and free speech are really things that you can explore best in writing. Well, yes, I, I think precisely because I do believe in, in cosmopolitan societies and, and, and people from many different backgrounds living together and learning from one another and so on that to me that is the ideal form of society and i thought think all great civilizations have come from mixing and if you think chinese history i mean the, it's not for nothing that the tang dynasty was a great period because it was people from many different places lived in chang'an and and, and other cities so i believe in that and that means that i believe in freedom and to me, freedom is perhaps more important than anything else. And I don't think you can have complete, absolute freedom. I'm not an anarchist, but I do think it's more important than anything else. Mia Funk had the opportunity to sit down with Ian Baruma to discuss his background, body of work, and writing process. Baruma discussed how all of his writing revolves around this issue of how people perceive themselves and how nationalism plays into that. I love the complementary nature of a writer being inspired by one's perception of their identity and then taking that inspiration to create a body of work which allows others in the form of readers to escape their own identities and inhabit or at least begin to understand others' characters. For example, I, in 2014, had the opportunity to move with my family from the United States to Rotterdam in the Netherlands for a year. As a result, Baruma's book excerpt from the beginning of the podcast was a familiar scene to me, especially as 2014 was a FIFA World Cup year. Everyone was constantly dressing up in orange, and our Dutch neighbors were adamant that we come watch every game because having the Americans present meant the Dutch team would win. I experienced a similar scene to the one Baruma described as both innocent and fun, but hearing Baruma's almost garish description allowed me to reevaluate and understand it as an intense expression of Dutch nationalism. While there, we got to experience the Netherlands as both tourists and locals, bringing the tensions Baruma discussed into stark contrast. We went and saw tall blondes and wooden clogs stroll through fields of tulips, only to ride home on the train and find a protest against immigration back at the Rotterdam station. 
literature and writing are powerful tools to interpret and reevaluate our own experiences while teaching us about foreign experiences and identity, which is abundantly clear in Baruma's writing. So thank you for providing the connection, which allows us to escape our own personal context and enter into unfamiliar perspectives. Hi, I wanted to ask um, a little bit about the style that you come to write in. We've been talking about why you write about the topics that you write about, but your style is so interesting because while a lot of it is based in history writing, it's very narrative and literary in nature as well. So I was wondering how you came to adapt that style and how you feel that it's important in exploring these different identities. I'm very glad you asked that question. And I'm glad that you see it that way. I think for two reasons. Uh, one is that I began as a photographer, and so I'm a very visual person. And so I like to, to describe and, and to write about things that I can actually see with my own eyes. I'm not very drawn to theory. I don't like reading theory very much, and I certainly don't write in a theoretical manner. So I, I love concreteness in writing and writing based on personal experience. I think that's probably the main reason. And then I was very much encouraged to write in this way by a great editor of the New York Review of Books called Robert Silvers, who, who was always stressing personal experience. What did you see? What did you hear? Was very uh, skeptical about uh, being too theoretical and too abstract. And my other great influence is, has been V.S. Naipaul who, regardless of what one might think of his politics, was a very vivid and visual writer who was a great influence, really, from a very um, early age. Tell us about your path to becoming an editor. Well, I've never really been much of an editor. I, I, I um, was given a job in the 70s, no, no, sorry, 80s, <clears throat> in Hong Kong, to edit the cultural pages for the Far Eastern Economic Review, which is a magazine that no longer exists. And that meant that I could do a lot of writing and I could travel around Asia, but I also edited other pieces. I had to put those pages together. And so that was really my main experience. And then I've edited the New York Review of Books for a year, but th that's really all the editing I've done. So I'm much more a writer than, than an editor. I enjoyed editing, but um, I don't see myself primarily in that role. I did have a strong sense that being a writer and an editor means you have to take risks, you have to provoke, you have to go against sometimes the received opinions of many of your readers. That's very different from a generation that feels that social justice is the most important thing. And the people you assign to write for a magazine, the opinions you want to promote in the magazine have to all be um, part of this movement, which is not to say I don't agree with a lot of the goals of, of social justice. I mean, obviously, I do. But these are, are two very different approaches to writing and editing. Yes, the importance of a diversity of voices and opinions and everyone's angle on diversity is, is different. And as you reflect now on the evolution or the different pathways that journalism is taking, and so much journalism now is a bit, as you say, skewed towards activism or it might be performative theater. Well, yes, and I'm skeptical about that. I think it's very important in mixed societies that people from different backgrounds have a voice. I have absolutely no problem with that notion at all. But I do 
have a problem with the notion that you pick people because of their background or their the color of their skin, regardless of what they might have to say or how good they are or how interesting they are. In other words, I don't find a writer interesting because he or she, or indeed they, are from a particular background, racially or ethnically or culturally. I will judge whether I find the work interesting or not, or whether it's thought-provoking or beautiful or whatever, but not performative in an ethnic or racial or gender sense. I, I, that doesn't interest me very much, but that's just personal. The other thing, which is also personal, and it's, it's probably something I've got from my father and even my grandfather, is that my inclination is to look at B, just to be difficult in a way, but also because I find that more interesting and just repeating what everybody else thinks and says strikes me as very dull. But that gets you into trouble, as I found. Well, sometimes it's good to be able to see to what extent they believe what they believe, just to say yes. that little bit of <laughs> jarring. You know, if someone does a good and in-depth job, I know that there was a controversy recently with a translator for the poet Amanda Gorman, perfectly you know, talented translator, but was not of the same background as Amanda Gorman. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I'm very much against that because I think it could work to very much the disadvantage of minorities. There was a piece in Le Monde which impressed me by somebody who was a translator of Russian literature in, in French. And he himself was of Jewish origin. And he said that he'd been criticized by a Russian Orthodox person who said the only people who could properly understand and therefore translate Dostoevsky and so on have to be Russian Orthodox. Well, if you take that to a logical conclusion, a black person then couldn't translate any white literature or somebody of, of Chinese or Korean background couldn't translate from English. That would be an absurd situation. In the end, what matters is whether you have the imagination, the linguistic skills, the, the understanding, the scholarship, etc. But it shouldn't depend on, you know, how you were born. Also, it just seems like it's the definition of a translator is someone who is bringing one culture to another. So it's good for you to, in a way, <laughs> be able to do that. You have to be transnational in so many ways. I'm curious how much good trouble or controversy you find to be really like vital to journalism. Is the point to sort of generate conversation or is there a, a space where that becomes too much? What constitutes successful journalism? Well, I think that depends a bit on the publication. I mean, there are some publications which set out to promote a particular political agenda, but for something like the New York Review of Books, or indeed the New Yorker, it seems to me it should um, be able to provoke a bit and push in different directions and, and indeed provoke discussion. And you only provoke discussion. I, I hate the way in, in America today people constantly use the word comfortable. I, that makes me feel uncomfortable. Or students say it all the time, and hence the notion of safe spaces and so on. Now, nobody wants to insult people and deliberately hurt their feelings. And I think that one thing that people often miss in these discussions is that, that there is a big difference between offending and insulting. You can offend somebody by having an opinion, but without you meaning to cause offense. Whereas insulting, you always mean to wound somebody. 
and there's no there's no um, justification for that but pushing students and readers out of their comfort zone is an essential um, part of writing and in terms of your teaching what are the things that you make sure to include in your courses uh, at Bard? I like teaching cinema and I like teaching literary journalism. Not so much teaching people how to write literary journalism, but by reading texts and watching films and discussing them. And one reason I like doing that is, especially in the United States, but more and more elsewhere, young people have a very weak grasp of history. I start the literary journalism with, with Jacuzzi, the Zola piece. You get them to think about history and how people have often different approaches, different ways of thinking than people do now. And it's very important for young people to be aware of that and not assume that somehow we've now discovered the perfect society and the perfect way to think about everything and the perfect moral approach and so on. And everybody who uh, came before the year 2000 was an idiot. I'm very interested in the different ways that people read on how it helps inform their perspective on the world. But, you know, what has reading given you? Well, of course, it depends on what you're reading. There are certain things you would read for information. But especially in nonfiction, very little survives in the long term. I mean, very little historical writing or essays written in the past is still read but to the extent that it is still read it's no longer for the information i mean nobody's going to read gibbons the decline and fall of the roman empire just because they want to learn about ancient rome it's still being read because of the style because he was a great writer in this last year of covid when we were all sort of rather confined in space um I loved reading things that took me out of my own time. And I turned to the classics and started reading Stendhal seriously and uh, Maupassant and Flaubert and all that kind of thing, or Japanese novelists of the 1920s and 30s, just to take you into a completely different world and time, which I find very stimulating. A lot of your work is work that is in other worlds and is published about other people and other cultures. So I'm curious about if you do any writing, especially during this time of COVID, just about your day-to-day life, if you journal or if you write poetry or what writing looks like to your to your personal everyday life. My wife is, has been constantly pestering me saying I should be writing a journal. I'm not a journal writer. I think you have to be temperamentally people who are born to be diarists. I've never been able to keep that up, just like I've never been able to work out in the gym for longer than a month or so. I get so bored. So I, perhaps I should have, but I no, I didn't keep a diary. I did do a lot of writing, though, and I found it actually in that sense, the COVID period congenial because it allowed you to concentrate. And so, yeah, I've, I'm almost finishing um, my next book and so it's been a productive period and i believe that's about three wartime collaborators tell us a little if you may well it's i've I've always been interested in collaborators partly because we grew up my generation and grew up because in a country that had been occupied by the nazis 
one was very conscious of you know who'd collaborated who had been a hero and so on and when i was at primary school most people still pretended that they'd all been resistance heroes you know your school teachers and all that which mostly nonsense and then in the the 1960s when a new generation my generation came up a lot of that was put into doubt and i think anybody who grew up just after the war still uses World War II very much as a kind of moral yardstick of who was good, bad, who was good, uh, how to behave, and so on. As a boy, of course, I found heroes interesting, and I read books about Spitfire pilots and Dutch resistance heroes and all that. But later on, as you get older, I found the, the collaborators more interesting because you can sort of more easily imagine the temptations of being a collaborator or the fears that lead to becoming a collaborator than becoming a hero. And the three figures, one woman and, and two men that I picked, were all fantasizers and self-mythologizers. And, and I did that because we live in the, the era of fake news and, and postmodernism and where the idea of the truth is being very much contested. And I felt that under occupation, in dictatorships, and, and so on, the truth, of course, disappears completely. And, and everybody's, in some ways, engaged in fakery, including the resistance, with, with fake names and fake histories, fake passports, fake documents. And so it was a great period for fantasizers, for people who wanted to make up <clears throat> a life that was more glamorous and so on than than the real thing. And so one is the story of a Hasidic, a, Jew, a Jewish immigrant in the Netherlands, who became a fraudster, a con man, and made up lists and, and got people to pay to be on those lists of, of Jews who were promised that they could escape by train to France and Spain and Portugal, and, which was all phony. The other one was a Manchu princess who was adopted by a right-wing Japanese and was a cross-dresser, dressed as a man, and believed in the, that her goal, as was true of some of the Japanese right-wing at the time, of the revival of the Qing dynasty and became a collaborator with the Japanese secret police in Shanghai. And the third person was Himmler's masseur, who claimed to have saved a lot of people and, and got Himmler to rescue people from concentration camps because Himmler had terrible stomach cramps. And the only person uh, who could uh, relieve his pain was this master who was born in Estonia and was a Finnish citizen. And he claims that he got Himmler to agree to release people from camps in exchange for uh, what Himmler called the magic hands of his master. None of what these three people claimed is reliable. A lot has been written about them. They've written their own accounts, and it's all highly unreliable. But that's precisely what I found interesting. I'm curious if you think that there is such a thing as a reliable history. Isn't all history sort of written with bias of some sort? Or what would you consider the most reliable form of history? Yes, that, that's true. I mean, there is no such thing in history writing as 100% true because people will always contest what is true. But that doesn't mean 
there is no difference between fiction and nonfiction. And the, the, the fashionable postmodernist view, of course, is that they are so blurred that to, to see a distinction is kind of useless. And that what, what people make up can be just as true as what people don't make up. And I don't believe that that is right. Some things are true after all. I mean, some things happened, there are facts. And how you interpret the facts and the conclusions you draw from the facts, that there people can differ, but you have to try and get the, the basic facts right. I mean, somebody who writes a history saying the Holocaust never happened is not the same thing as somebody trying to show how, exactly how it did happen. So I don't think a historian or, or a writer of nonfiction should make things up and pretend that they are facts. But in terms of how you interpret it, of course, there is a huge amount of difference. There is no ultimate arbiter somewhere out there who can decide as a great judge of what is the truth and what isn't. And as you, um, you write as factually as, as you can from the period, the distance of history, um, as you imagine yourself behind the eyes of these collaborators or other figures in history, I can only imagine that you would um, ask yourself, what if you are dropped into that moment and how you would deal with that situation? Yes, although their lives are so different from mine, I can't say that I identify uh, deeply uh, personally with any of these characters but yes you do have to try and understand why they did what they did which doesn't necessarily mean that you might have done the same thing but uh, but certain aspects of of this of course you can identify with i mean the thirst for adventure the desire to be a big shot the fear uh, that often went into it the greed the chances of suddenly getting all kinds of things that in normal circumstances you wouldn't have been able to get i mean any human human being could identify with unless you're a saint but that doesn't mean you would have done exactly the same thing they did but you do have to if you're writing about these characters, even if they're terrible people, see them as human beings and try and understand them. And do you feel lucky to not then uh, have to live or have not had to have taken part in, in these wars where sometimes your humanity is? Absolutely. I, I think it's thoughtless when people who grow up in comfort and, and safety sort of start claiming that they feel nostalgic for more adventurous but dangerous and horrible times. I think there's a big def difference between the generation that, that, that lived through the Second World War and our generations that never had to face these terrible dilemmas. And it's also true that the generation that did experience it often had more to say, which is, I think, why perhaps artistically the periods in which they thrived were richer but that's no reason to feel nostalgic for what they experienced we have been extremely fortunate but yeah if the price to pay is that we have less to say well so be it and in terms of the stories the memories that were passed on to you through from your own family about wartime yes that well that, that's again it's very generational I was born in December 1951, so that was six years after the war. 
And so that meant that you still really grew up in the shadow of the war because all the adults around you had experienced it in different ways. And so you grew up with their, sto their stories, you grew up with books, comics, films, and so on, all obsessed still with World War II. So absolutely, I grew up with it and will be myself in one way or another obsessed by it until I die, but not quite in the same way as people who experienced it. Um, and people who experienced the worst, often the last thing they wanted was to be obsessed by it. They wanted to get away from it and not talk about it and not read about it. Whereas if you grew up, if you were born afterwards, you have the luxury to want to read about it and hear about it. Of course, people react differently. I mean, there were also people who did experience these things who couldn't stop talking about it. But it's not for nothing that the first time, for example, that the Holocaust, or indeed the question of collaboration, became serious topics was with the next generation. It was in the 1960s with the student protests began in, in Holland and France and Japan, all over the Germany that the younger generation began to question what their parents had gone through. The parents often didn't talk about these things. Take the example of France, the, the famous documentary about Vichy, France, by Marcel Ophuls, uh, Le Chagrin de Pitié, came out the year after the May 68 student rebellion. And the two are very connected. So it was, it was the, the, the people who were in their 20s in the 60s who really started talking in, uh, about that history. And you've contrasted that, say, with the uh, way um, Germany has dealt with its past and Japan. Yes. And those two countries, it's not coincidental that the most extreme far left politics occurred in Germany and Japan and in Italy amongst the, that the student rebellions in those three countries end, resulted in, in left-wing extremism. The Red Army in Japan, the Red Army faction in Germany, and the Brigato Rosso in Italy. And it was very much because in those countries, young people felt they had to make up for the failings of their parents. You know, their parents looked the other way, their parents were Nazis, their parents were, you know, invaded China and so on. And so they had to be resistors. And that led in the end to extremism. My book about comparing Germany and Japan is, is precisely because I grew up in a country that felt rather self-righteously that they'd been on the right side, the Germans were, were all evil and so on. And, and to live in Japan and to see the very complicated ways in which the Japanese remembered the war fascinated me and then I decided well it'd be very interesting to, to compare and contrast it to the same thing in Germany and it, it, that led to quite a lot of resistance and still does because people not so much in in Japan because the Japanese rather liked comparing themselves to the Germans the German liberals hated the comparison because you know before the war the Germans were often sort of described as the European samurai and the Japanese as the Asian Germans and so on. And a lot of Germans were allergic to it. But there's a deeper reason, which is why people resist those comparisons, which I've continued to make, including in the book I'm, I'm now writing, in that so many people 
have this fixed notion that there is some absolute difference between East and West. Well, but their cultures are so different, you can't really compare them. And actually, when you do compare the experience, even though the, the, the war in Asia was, was very different from the war in Europe, but if you look at the way people react to these extreme circumstances, the way they remember them, the way they think about them and so on, there are so many similarities. But to, to say that and to uh, look for those similarities rubs a lot of people the wrong way because I think that they, they assume that because cultures are so different people must be people must be different but they aren't really I mean yes the cultures are different the way people express themselves are different etc but this might sound sentimental but but the, one of the reasons I was interested in and remain interested in studying the cultures of places like Japan and China and Korea are not because they're so different, but because you, there's a common humanity under the surface of difference. And that's what drew me to Japanese movies in the, when I was a student, is that everything looks different. The people look different. They speak a language I didn't know then and, and so on. But it was so easy to, to find a common humanity in a culture that I was totally unfamiliar with. Some people are less comfortable with that, and you spoke about it a little bit, what prepared you imaginatively, but what do you think it's about you that is able to tune in to different cultures? Not everyone has that. Well, again, I think it goes back to growing up in a mixed family, and that you're used to constantly adapting to another language and another way of doing things. And that when I was with my mother's family, I tried to fit in as in a British context. And when I was at home, I tried to fit in probably neither completely convincingly. You remain a hybrid in a way. But the exercise, of course, prepares you very well for trying to fit in in different environments. When I uh, started living in Tokyo, first as a student in the 1970s, I had no desire to be part of some expatriate community where people, you know, gather for Saturday evenings to eat the food that they're used to at home and talk about the Japanese and so on. I mean, that wasn't, didn't interest me. I wanted to be in a completely Japanese world. In closing, because uh, you've been so generous with your time, and we're looking forward to your forthcoming books uh, as well. I know you're writing then after that uh, a biography of Spinoza, but have you fixed on the title of your book on the three collaborators? Yeah, I'm thinking of calling it The Collaborators. The problem is <clears throat> that in America, uh, the word collaborator doesn't have the same resonance as it does in Europe. In Europe, you know, in France, as you know, when you talk about a collaborator, you think of collabo and so on, and you immediately have a very negative feeling about it. In America, the collaborators is rather neutral. And so some Americans have said, oh, no, you have to think of something snappier. We think a lot about the future, as I know you have throughout your uh, long career, about our current systems, about the environmental crisis, uh, political systems, and how we might you know, improve them in order to build a better tomorrow. So as you reflect on that, do you have some messages for young people? I can only emphasize that in terms of education is everything should be fostered to open people's minds, open minds to 
the past to other cultures and not to have minds closed by um, limiting ourselves more and more to the circumstances of our birth. And one remark I would make about the current discussions about minorities, identity, and so on, is that I, I have a strong feeling at the, that at the moment, in, especially in the United States, people are much more interested in the culture and backgrounds and so on of minorities than they are in the cultures where those minorities originally came from. In other words, there is huge interest now in a category that's virtually meaningless, I think, but say Asian Americans, but there's much less interest in China or India or uh, Thailand. And I think that's a pity. And I, and I think it's a sign of people drawing inwards more and more. And that goes for the right-wing populists and, and white supremacists just as much. I mean, they're also drawing the wagons around what they see as their identity. And I think that's exactly not the way to go. Yes, we have to be able to look beyond these slogans to nuanced individual experiences mm. Mm. and then our individual responsibilities within that. So I want to thank you, Ian Baruma, for sharing your insights on writing, your reflections on the complexity of politics, arts, and society, and your immense contributions to the public debate. Thank you for adding your voice. Thank you very much. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Corinna Howell. Digital Media Coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.